0: Sean Finnegan and you are listening to Restitudio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Before we can understand how textual scholars do their work today, it's important to understand the history of how they have endeavored to reconstruct the Greek New Testament over the years. In this episode, you'll learn about the rich and important history of how our understanding of the Greek New Testament changed over the last 500 years. This history is vital for you to understand why older translations are often based on younger manuscripts. A key paradox we'll return to in future sessions. Here now is episode 338, Bible part 9, Reconstructing the New Testament. I was thinking about this title reconstructing the New Testament and I was thinking maybe some people would maybe if they hadn't seen previous episodes think that I was in some way criticizing or attacking the New Testament and so I thought it would be good here right at the top to say where I'm coming from on this subject. First of all, I want to assure you that I'm not here to attack Scripture. I'm not here to criticize it. I believe in the Bible, I believe in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I believe in this inspiration and its authority and its usefulness uh, for my own life personally, and for others as well, and so the New Testament is extremely precious to me, and that's precisely why I'm so concerned and so interested to do the work to figure out what is the best text of the New Testament. Uh, And I'm not really interested in the tradition or the traditional New Testament. I'm interested in the authentic New Testament. And so that's really what's driving me and those others who are also interested in this whole field of reconstructing the New Testament, because the simple fact of the matter is we don't have just a New Testament lying around. What we have are many different manuscripts. And we've looked at these in previous episodes. We've looked at the uh, six different sources for the New Testament. The papyri, the unseals, the minuscules, the lectionaries, the quotations in the Church Fathers, and the ancient translations. We've looked at this and in looking at it we see that as far as Greek sources go we have something like almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts and if we include ancient translations in that the numbers up near 20,000, 25,000 ancient manuscripts in Greek and other languages. So what we need to do, since we don't have just like one New Testament, we have so many different copies that are made over such a long period of time is compare them to each other and do our best to get back to the original that was then copied and copied and copied over the centuries. So for example, the earliest complete copy of the New Testament that we have is Codex Sinaiticus, which was found in 1859 by Constantine von Tischendorf. And that's just such a a fun story to tell about how he discovered that down at the traditional site of Mount Sinai at St. Catherine's Monastery. Well, this Bible goes back to approximately the year 350. And so this is not the original New Testament that the apostles wrote. We know when it was written. It was written around the year 350. Uh, So this is 300 years, three centuries, give or take, from the time of the New Testament. And we also know that Sinaiticus has mistakes in it. There are errors in the copying of that manuscript. In fact, every manuscript has some sort of errors in it, or maybe not errors, but differences to other manuscripts, little deviations, anything from something very minor like spelling, to uh, not having the definite article, or having it, or wa- ordering the words differently, which in Greek is not that big of a deal. These are all translation. These are all the sorts of things that come out in translation, uh, because in English you would still order things the same, and spelling would wouldn't affect how you translate into English. So these are all things that are invisible most of the time, um, but they are nevertheless part of what We have before us, so we can't just grab one New Testament and say, Well, that's the New Testament. That's if it's good enough for the apostles, it's good enough for me. We don't have the apostles' New Testaments, we have copies and we have lots of copies hundreds and hundreds of copies, thousands and thousands of copies. In fact, and we what we need to do is reconstruct the what, what our best understanding is of the Greek New Testament, and this is really an important quest for us as. Christians, as people that care about this book, and scholars who are just interested in it for the sake of scholarship, Uh, this goal to figure out the oldest and best text and reconstruct the earliest form of the Greek New Testament is really a primary objective. And what I mean by that is, let's say, for example, I've, I've used this illustration before, if you do a translation, you could have the most accurate translation in the world into the English language, for example, but if what you're translating from, if that Greek New Testament has a flaw or an error or added verses in it, guess what? It doesn't matter how good of a translator you are, you're going to have those flaws and corruptions in your translation. Same thing with interpretation. You could be the, the most learned and most expert interpreter of the Bible and putting verses to together with other verses and understanding the cultural, historical background and all this, and just be such an expert and a quality gifted scholar in that regard. But if what you're interpreting itself isn't what they actually wrote, then what good is it? So this is really a primary goal. We have to establish a text. We've looked at this for the Old Testament. We're looking at it now for the New Testament. Establish a text of the New Testament, and then from there, bring it into English so English-speaking people can read it, and then interpret individual verses and then synthesize doctrines and and other things. So it's really building one on top of the other. And we're talking about that foundational base layer of what is the text? How do we arrive at the text? And so this might not be the most exciting material uh, to talk about, maybe a little technical, but it is primary in that sense. And then when, when the work of all of this is done, what's known as the field of textual criticism, what we end up with are Greek critical texts. And these are the three most common ones that we have today that are current, that Bible translators in, in whatever language you're translating into are going to use as sources of the New Testament. So the first one on the left there is the nestle Hollande, 28th edition, which came out in 2012. The one in the middle is the UBS, United Bible Societies, fifth edition, which came out in 2014. And these two, honestly, are about identical. Uh, There are a few little differences in uh, the general epistles, but other than that, they're essentially identical. And then in 2017, we got a fresh Greek critical text from Tyndale House. They have kind of parted with some of the methodology that is that is coming up now and in 2017 they came out with a different Greek New Testament. Now most of your translations, most English translations, are not based on these. They're based on previous versions of these. For for example, the 27th nestle Aland or the fourth UBS, and or the third, depending on what century, decade, and so on, your translation was done. Uh, but I just wanted to show you these three as the most recent up to date as far as what we're talking about what we're talking about today and next time is how do they how do these scholars generate these three versions that we have to make translations from because it's not just sort of the sort of thing you can sign off to somebody else be like oh the experts will figure it out it's not so cut and dry as that <laughs> there's a lot of decision making that happens along the way and it's important to know what those are so That's what we're going to talk about today. As far as, right now, I want to begin 500 years ago with the year 1502, Cardinal Francisco Jimenez de Cisneros, commonly just called Jimenez, he led a team to print a polyglot. That's a Bible in multiple columns, multiple languages. It was an incredibly ambitious project that resulted in six volumes in multiple languages. I want to show you some pictures of this because it is just really such a spectacular piece of work that he put out. It became known as a Complutensian Polyglot. Uh, Not the most marketable name, I'll admit that. (laughs) Uh, But the Complutensian Polyglot, this is a page from Exodus chapter 1. We can see on the left side we have the Greek Septuagint with a Latin interlinear. And it might be a little hard to see, but I'm gonna zoom in in just a minute. So that's that leftmost column. And then on the rightmost column, you have the actual Hebrew. This is the Old Testament part of the Complutensian Polyglot. It's a complete Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. So you have the Septuagint with a Latin interlinear. You have the Hebrew on the right. Then he put roots for Hebrew words, uh, verbs, on the rightmost column, to, just as a reading aid for anybody that reads Hebrew, the verb is where the action is, and you don't always necessarily know what the word is unless you can figure out the root. So that's just a nice, helpful tool there. Then he put the Targum onkelos on the bottom left in Aramaic, which is really fascinating. We talked about Targums before in this class, and onkelos certainly the most or one of the most important of them. And then he has a Latin translation of onkelos on the bottom right, along with roots for Aramaic verbs on the bottom right. And then that center column there, he has a Latin Vulgate, which is sort of like the accepted translation at the times in the 1500s that everyone would already know. Really an exceptional work. He finished the New Testament in the year 1514. And we can see on the left side here, that it's a two-column New Testament. It doesn't have whatever that was for the Old Testament, six seven columns. It only has two columns. It has the Greek New Testament on the leftmost column and then it has the Latin Vulgate on the right column. And uh, that's just uh, simply because there, there was less language stuff to work with for the New Testament, so just Greek and Latin. Really nice, easy on the eyes. In, in some ways, even though this is the first printed Greek New Testament, 1514. In some ways, it's, it's far better than many of the later ones, in my personal opinion, just because it's easier to read. And we can see right at the top here, it says, toccata, matatheon, agion, evangelion, and uh, then we have Latin mixed in, cap one. So this says the gospel according to St. Matthew, is a uh, little heading there. And then you've got that really fancy looking bee with a girl drawn in there. And uh, that B, and then B I B L O S. Vivlos inu seos Christu you, David you, Abraham. So that's the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Matthew chapter one, verse one. Uh, and then on the right side we have the Latin that corresponds. Now, what's interesting is that Heaney has his translation was finished in 1514 and even printed in 1514, but he delayed until about 1517 until he had finished the whole Bible when he was ready to finally distribute it. And that allowed a wily priest scholar named Desiderius Erasmus to rush his own Greek New Testament into print in 1516 and distribute it as well. Now why I say Erasmus was wily is because he actually went to the Pope and got approval for exclusive publishing rights for a four-year period, which sounds like such a modern thing to do, but uh, that's what he did. So Erasmus uh, successfully got his Greek New Testament into print and into sale in 1516. And so even though the Complotentian Polyglot, which was a very slow, very detailed, very meticulous project was done earlier, they couldn't sell it until this four-year window was up and uh, that ended up delaying the competency about Polyglot till 1520 and uh, actually they didn't even really make it widely available till 1522. Now I want to talk to you about Erasmus's version here of the Greek New Testament. It was not carefully done based on the best and oldest manuscripts. It was quickly done based on the most accessible manuscripts. and That's a big difference. You can see on the left side we have Greek. You see the typeset is much more cursive uh, than what we saw at the Complutentian Polyglot. And then on the right side we have a Latin translation. So this is actually this is actually the same exact text that I just showed you from the other one. This is Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ uh, son of David, son of Abraham uh, on both sides there, and then it goes through the genealogy. As I mentioned, Erasmus based his Greek New Testament on what was available, not what was necessarily the best. And he just had a few late manuscripts from the 12th century, including minuscules 1 and 2. Uh, Bart Ehrman and Bruce Metzger said the following about Erasmus' translation. Quote, since Erasmus could not find a manuscript that contained the entire Greek New Testament, he utilized several for various parts of the New Testament. For most of the text, he relied on two rather inferior manuscripts from a monastic library at Basel, one of the Gospels, and one of the Acts and Epistles, both dating from about the 12th century. Erasmus compared them with two or three others of the same books and entered occasional corrections for the printer in the margins or between the lines of Greek script. For the book of Revelation, he had but one manuscript, dating from the 12th century, which he had borrowed from his friend, Reuchlin. Unfortunately, this manuscript lacked the final leaf, which contained the last six verses of the book the book of Revelation. Instead of delaying publication of his edition while trying to locate another copy of Revelation in Greek, Erasmus, perhaps at the urging of his printer, depended on the Latin Vulgate and translated the missing verses into Greek. This is the wrong direction, ladies and gentlemen. The the New Testament was not written in Latin. We don't translate from Latin into the Greek. That's the wrong direction. The New Testament is written in Greek, We're supposed to find Greek sources, and if we find Greek sources, then we translate those into Latin or whatever other language there happens to be. So this is actually a telltale sign of a, a Bible that was either dependent on or translated from this Erasmus Greek New Testament of the 16th century. If you look in your Bible, we're going to do this in a little bit, At the last few verses of the whole Bible in the book of Revelation and you see that it says tree of life then your Bible is based on the older manuscripts at least in that incident and if it says book of life then you have Erasmus's back translation from Latin into Greek influencing your Bible to this very day. Um, Holding that to the side for a second. What I showed you was the complotency and polyglot of Jimenez, and how beautiful it was, how well, it's, how well it was done. None of that really matters because what matters is that Erasmus won. Erasmus outmaneuvered Jimenez. Erasmus got known for printing out the Greek New Testament. The printing press had been invented in the 1450s. This is now 1516. Erasmus is the first one to print. Boom! It's going to be him and that's the version of the New Testament that's widely circulated throughout Europe that then leads to translations by Martin Luther in the year 1522, translates from Erasmus' Greek New Testament into the German language. That's the first Luther Bible. Then you have William Tyndale, 1526, translates from Erasmus's Greek New Testament into English, and this eventually gets incorporated into later revisions of the English Bible including, most famously, the King James Version, all based on Erasmus in one way or another. Not uh, solely, once we get a little further out, but at least in the early years, in the 1500s it was. Now we move to our next main figure, which is this printer by the name of Robert Estine, also known as Robertus Stephanus. He was a printer and a classical scholar, and this guy really did an interesting job because he took the Complutensian Polyglot of Jimenez, he took Erasmus's Greek New Testament and several other manuscripts that he had access to, and he worked them all together into his own critical Greek New Testament. And he put out editions in 1528 and 1546, which were noteworthy for the typeface designed by Claude Garamond. We have a font today called Garamond Font. And so we can see here in this picture. This is the last page of Robert Estienne's Greek New Testament. Uh, this is probably from the year 1550, which is the most famous version. And we can see by looking at this that as the text ends, he tapers it in the middle, which is just artistry. I love that, beautiful. Uh, and if we zoom in a little bit, we can see that. This phrase, Bibliotis zois, that I have highlighted here, this is the part of Revelation where it says, if you remove any of the words of this book, you will be removed from, your portion will be removed from the Book of Life. And so, the only way you can get this reading is from the Latin source that Erasmus had. The Greek New Testament, the Greek manuscripts do not contain this reading. Uh, so it got ensconced in this version here. I'm not really sure exactly what what the reason was, why there weren't more manuscripts of Revelation available, but this is just a, a fact of history, and it's sort of like an easy way to spot if your version is influenced by this tradition. So this is the 1550 edition. It quickly became the dominant critical text, and it was known as the Editio Regia, the Royal Edition, known also more commonly today as the Textus Receptus, also called the Received Text, or a lot of people abbreviate it to TR. And so that's just basically the same as Robert Esteen's version. Sometimes people call it the Stevens Text or Stephanus. It's all referring to the same thing. It's the 1550 edition where he took the Complutensian Polyglide, took Erasmus's GNT, and he had some other manuscripts. He worked them all together. And it held sway, this version, this 1550 version, this printed Greek New Testament, held sway for three centuries, until the year 1881. So from 1550 to 1881, that's a long run for anything, right? What were his sources? What were Robert Estienne's sources? What, well, he had versions that were based on minuscules. They also incorporated Codex Beze and Codex Regius. So, the, so you had minuscules and then two unseals. What about the un, other unseals? What about Sinaiticus? What about Vaticanus? What about Alexandrinus? What about Ephraimia Rescriptus? Guess what? They weren't discovered yet. It's 1550. Like none of this stuff has even been found. So what about the papyri? We talked about the papyri, P45, P46, P75, the Chester Beatty papyri, the Martin Bodmer papyri, the Oxyrhynchus discoveries. What about all that? Guess what? None of that was discovered yet either. So he only had, as far as older manuscripts, Beze and Regius. And, you know, the problem with Beze is that, in the words of Bruce Metzger, no known manuscript has so many and such remarkable variations from what is usually taken to be the normal New Testament text. I had read you that quote earlier. Regius was, quote, badly written by a scribe who committed many ignorant blunders, end quote. So these are not the superstar unseals that we've seen before. These are sort of substandard unseals that even Erasmus and Hemanas knew, they're, they're like, eh, I don't really want to go with that. And oftentimes they didn't go with the unseal, they went with the minuscule over the unseal. And uh, this is what ends up coming into the Texas Receptus here. Now, I don't want you to get the impression that I think Robert Esteen did a bad job. I think he did an awesome job. I think he did the best job he could with what he had in the year 1550. It was a huge leap forward. He had even some footnotes and textual apparatus where he would tell you about other manuscripts. I mean really phenomenal work, but so many older and more accurate manuscripts were discovered later on that it led to the next main step forward. Now in the 16th and 17th centuries, there was a lot of searching of museums and libraries to find manuscripts of the new testament in the 18th century there was a fellow by the name of Johann griesbach who came out with a new critical greek new testament that challenged the Textus receptus and he used a list of objective criteria to decide between different manuscripts which ones are more likely to be original and we're going to talk more about that next time But then, in the 19th century, we've also already talked about Constantine von Tischendorf, how he deciphered Ephraim Euruscriptus. He discovered Codex Sinaiticus and made it available to scholarship. Tischendorf came out with his own critical Greek New Testament in the 19th century, in the middle of it. Um, Then, in the 19th century, also Codex Vaticanus became available. It had been around in the Vatican since, like, the 1400s or whatever, but became available in the 19th century. And then, of course, in the late 19th century is when Grenfell and Hunt made their discovery in Oxyrhynchus. So all of this stuff happens in the 19th century, and this leads to Brooke Westcott and Fenton Hort and their critical Greek New Testament of the year 1881. What they did is they built upon the work of Griesbach and Tischendorf and the others who came before, and they came out with a Greek New Testament in two volumes. The first volume was a reconstruction of the Greek New Testament based on all these different manuscripts that they had access to, which was still by today's standard very limited. Uh, But at the time it's certainly way more than what Esteen had for his Textus Receptus. And their methodology came to dominate how textual scholars would proceed for the next century. These guys ended up leaning heavily on Vaticanus and um, I think there are good reasons for that at the time, but Since then, we've discovered older stuff that is even more important than Vaticanus. All right, moving ahead then, let's look at some of the more famous people that are involved in the history of this. Next up, we have Eberhard Nestle, who lived from 1851 to 1913. He improved upon the Westcott and Hort text of 1881, and in 1898, he produced an influential pocket Greek New Testament for the Württemberg Bible Institute in Stuttgart, Germany, which would later be renamed the German Bible Society of Stuttgart, Germany. And there were many subsequent important additions. So this Eberhard Nestle is actually one of the most important uh, beginners of a tradition of Greek New Testaments that actually persists to this day and is the leading Greek New Testament that translators will use today. So Nestle's son, Erwin, took over with the 13th edition in 1927, continuing his father's work. And then Kurt Aland came on the scene in the 21st edition in 1952, adding in many additional manuscripts and eventually bringing out the 25th edition in 1963, uh, Alan is someone I had told you about before. He traipsed all around the world taking photographs of all these different manuscripts for the INTF so that in 1979, the 26th edition came out, and now it's not just called the Nestle Bible, it's a nestle Aland Greek New Testament. So then in the 27th edition of it, which would be 1993, um, that would be the last one that Kurt Alland had worked on because he died in 1994. However, the Nestle Aland Greek New Testament, which I have right here, it has persisted. It's still very much uh, at the cutting edge to this day, and that's partly due to the work of Barbara Aland, his wife, who took over things and continued to work with others like Bruce Metzger, who I've quoted extensively in this class, Carlo Martini, Johannes Karavidopoulos, uh, culminating in the 28th edition of the Nestle Elon in the year 2012. And this, to this day, and it's the year 2020 right now, this is the standard one that people are used. the 28th edition. Now, when the 29th edition comes out, then translators will use that instead of the 28th edition, and so, so on and so forth. Um, so it's really, really important lasting. Legacy, this 500-year history of comparing New Testament manuscripts to reconstruct the Greek New Testament as best as possible. Um, However, as it turns out, right now we happen to find ourselves in the midst of a revolution in textual criticism and in the midst of some controversy on which way to go as far as what methods are better than others. This is, as it turns out, a sort of battle that's raging on and it's going to result in multiple new translations of the Bible that I think we're going to see in the next five, ten, certainly by the year 2030, we're going to see a lot of new translations because of big changes that are coming. So this is something that is very much a live field. I know we looked at 500 years worth of history, but it's not like, oh, well, yeah, they figured it out, so it's done. As we're going to see next time, we need to look at how they do the process of comparing these differences in the manuscripts so that we can get let in on the situation and make our own decisions about which variants are legitimate and which are not in our continuing quest to understand how we got the Bible. Well, that's it for this episode. If you'd like to check out some books I referred to, I have them in the show notes for this episode as well as some other links you might be interested in. If you want to come on the website and leave a comment or a question, love to hear from you. The site is Restitutio.org and you are going to look for episode 338, Reconstructing the New Testament. Speaking of which, we recently got a comment in from Kevin George on episode 336, Greek New Testament unseals, and he was asking the following, it has always been my understanding that the oldest Greek texts were always written in majuscule capital letters. But I have read in a few places that this is not true. Can you give me your input? The question has importance due to arguments related to writing the word God with a capital G versus lowercase g-o-d. Some people use this as their basis of argumentation regarding the definition of God. And uh, then Kevin goes on to cite a Wikipedia article about letter cases in which Latin and Greek are explained to have both capital and lowercase letters available at different times. Uh, Kevin, I'm certainly not an expert on all Greek literature. Um, What I know from the Greek New Testament manuscripts is that they are written in capital letters, and that seems to pretty much be the case until the ninth century. Uh, Might there be some exceptions in there? That's entirely possible, but really the onus is on the person who's going to call that into question. All they have to do is cite a manuscript, and then we can look at pictures of it and see that reference. Um, but I, I can tell you that for all the papyri and the unseals that I personally have seen, uh, which is not all of them, <laughs> not not even close, but I have seen quite a few of them, they are all capital letters. So uh, maybe somebody else out there has more information on this. We'd love to hear more from you on that. If any of you can can help out Kevin on this question. That's it for today. If you'd like to support Restitudio, you can do that online at restitudio.org. We'll catch you next time. And remember the truth has nothing to fear.